Well, so thankful that God constantly in the word is pointing us to the coming day of Christ our Lord. How do you get through the troubles in life? How do you get through the pains and the sufferings, the anguish? How do you get through those periods of great bereavement? You get through it because there is a day coming when it will be totally different. A day of the Lord. I'm grateful for Psalm 2 where we started. I, I won't reread that, but I'll just point back to it for a moment. In the second Psalm, which Chad read for us earlier, it says that, uh, why, did the, why did the nations act like this? Why did the nations rage and why did the people plot in vain? Rulers setting themselves up, in essence, against God, the psalmist says. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And look what it said in verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You know what he's saying there? There's a day coming when the judgment of God will fall. And all those who think they're coming against him, folly. The Lord laughs. Peter has that same understanding in his epistle, the second epistle, this final epistle before his death, where Rome thinks that they're going to have the last word in Peter's life, where the scoffers come against him and the mockers claim his word to be folly, to be full of myth. He holds the truth of God's counsel in his heart and he declares it in his mouth, oh, a day is coming when this will too end. So I want to trail back to 2 Peter chapter 1 today as we continue in this Living Well series of 2 Peter. And just as a, a way of reminding you of what the letter has mentioned to us already, I'm going to go back and just kind of hit some of the high points again so we get the context of today's verses, which is verse 16 and following. But 2 Peter chapter 1, remember over in chapter 1 verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Right on the outset, he says, look, those of you who are like us in our salvation, we have a commonality, it's equal and the standing is found not in us, the standing is found in Jesus Christ. Our wonderful faith established by God, entrusted to us by grace. He says, uh, we obtain righteousness by Christ. And then he says in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Of course, that's Jesus our Savior. And he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. What are those qualities? We mentioned them last week. These are the qualities of faith. It's given to knowledge of God's word and what we came up with as an acrostic virtues, uh, excuse me, values. The beginning of that is virtue. And of course, affection and love and uprightness and endurance and self-control. God says all those things are part of our faith and we grow in our faith when we are pressing towards those things, practicing those things, confirming our calling that those things are even possible by the calling of God in our life through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Then he says in verse 11, for in this way you will be richly provided for, uh, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we thank God for that. So after highlighting God's grace and peace that is given to us in Christ Jesus, Peter begins to point back to an accusation that has been made against him. And he's going to refute that accusation. And he, of course, is challenging us to walk in our call, to exercise in that, but to know that there are going to be attacks against us. And he mentions one of them that has come against him. And it, it sort of narrows down to this one thing. It's attacking Peter's claim that the Lord is coming again in glory and in power, and he will judge everything, every person, the living and the dead. He will judge us all. And that, people say, now that's, that's just a myth. <laughs> uh, that's just something he's come up with and everybody else has come up with. Uh, so Peter is going to acknowledge what they're saying and then he's going to give us the rebuttal, which is in verse 16 and following. Follow with me in the scripture, if you will. Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, made, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very vo voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word today. Encourage our hearts, fortify our minds with its truth, and let our lives be grounded richly in it that we might prosper and do the things which are eternal. And I pray this would bring glory to Christ our Savior and goodness to his people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So Peter's last epistle, this second epistle, is a blueprint, as it were, for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. If you know your New Testament history, you know that the apostolic age is coming to an end. The apostles are dying they're dying at the hands of persecutors and sinful murderers, unbelievers, and the church, Peter recognizes, needs to be able to stand on their own without the apostles. And how would they stand? But he is going to point them to the treasure of Scripture, the 27 books of the New Testament, which would soon be formed and canonized. Along with those 39 books of the Older Testament of Jesus Christ, Peter says, there, there is where you stand. And so knowing his death was imminent, Peter did not establish a way in which his leadership would continue. Much unlike what the Catholic Church proposes today, that Peter was the first pope and there was a continuation of 
his papacy that is cast throughout the generations. Peter doesn't do that. In this last epistle, he doesn't mention that at all. In fact, he doesn't talk about his own leadership, doesn't talk about the succession of that. Instead, he recognizes that with the universal church of Jesus Christ, there is but one head, one leader, and his name is Jesus himself. He's the author and the finisher of the faith, the perfecter. And pastors and teachers would be the local leaders guiding people to the scripture in all those Christ-centered churches that were founded in cities and towns and villages now throughout the world. And those leaders, pastors and teachers, would derive their guidance not from the witnesses before them, but from the testimony of the Scripture, the very Word of God that was put down on pages. And congregations are encouraged to make sure that their leaders are centered to that. In fact, that they would rightly divide the Word of Truth. That's the way you evaluate me. Is he speaking truth? When we open God's word, do we hear his words matching with the word of God? Is he living his life and testimony to the scriptures? Is he the leader that we ought to have? Not based on personality, not based on gifts and talents, but is God using him through the measure and the counsel of his word? Is it matching up? Do his words match? That's, a, that's always the way it's been, that churches ought to evaluate their pastors. So Peter has welded all that together. Pastors, teachers, the word of God, the congregations, and the apostle Paul does that as well. He takes Christ, the Bible, the church, and those leaders, and he clearly establishes, here's the way that God has purposed the church to be built up. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, look at it on the screen. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I'll just pause there for a minute and say, there's a building, a continual building here. The establishment of scripture came from the apostles and the prophets and since the scripture has been given to us the treasure the gospel is given to us there have been evangelists proclaimers who are sharing that good news throughout the land continuing to do that today and now the church is guided not by apostles not by prophets but by pastors teachers because we have the counsel of the word of God we have the word given to us in written form that we might live our lives accordingly so Paul says that God has given to us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. Then he says over in verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ that's our whole purpose moving that we might live think speak and act like our Lord Jesus Christ and how do we do that we engage our lives in the word of God we let the spirit speak to us by this word so it's clear from today's passage that false teachers are attacking Peter in this nature of the word what has he been saying what has he been telling people and they began to belittle him, saying that, well, he just has these cleverly devised myths that he is uh, espousing. And what's the focus of that attack? What's the angst? 
Where is there tension and anger? It comes in this, that Jesus Christ will return in glory and power to judge the living and the dead. That's the whole thing. That's what they're ticked off about. Can I just tell you the world is still ticked off about that? You wonder why the psalmist says the nations rage and the people battle against God? It's because of this, because Christ is going to return in glory and in power and he will judge the living and the dead. That has always brought tension and it continues to bring tension. It will forever bring tension. So we recognize in chapter three as well that Peter is, this is the direction that Peter is pointing to. This is the argument people are making. The scoffers are dismissing him. In fact, he'll later acknowledge their words over in chapter three, verse four. He says, uh, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, that is ever since our fathers have died before us, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You hear that? How silly of them to proclaim the Lord's coming back. That's what everybody's thought of every generation. All of our folks who have died before us, they all thought, oh, the Lord's coming back. Where is he? They're scoffing at him. So their dismissal of Christ and his glorious return with power had less to do with their differing eschatological views. That is the view of the end of time. It had less to do with that and more to do with the fact that they were unwilling to live holy lives. And if you're unwilling to live a holy life, then you are going to try to disconnect from the idea that somebody's going to hold you accountable to that sinful way of living. If you can just disconnect from the notion that Christ is coming to return in glory and power to judge the living and the dead, if you can disassociate from that, then you can live any way you want. That's their thought. And so this isn't about uh, the end time view, the ideology. This is not about doctrines. This is about the way I choose to live my life. And I don't want to live my life subject to anybody else who is going to put moral pressure on me. That's what they're saying. And Peter is simply acknowledging that. And he is going to refute that. It seems like the naysayers of the first century are much like the naysayers of the 21st century, doesn't it? And Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. And so sure, the naysayers are here. They're willing to hear and accept that Jesus Christ is a loving, compassionate, forgiving, generous, reconciling son of God. They're, they're willing to hear all that. However, they dismiss him as the all-knowing judge who will adjudicate in righteousness in the day ahead. They're eager to receive him for all the things that are beneficial to them, but they dismiss the idea that he is going to hold them accountable. They're willing to trust Jesus as long as they can imagine him to be permissible of their sinful ways and lifestyles, they'll reject him, though, when it comes down to him holding them accountable to a standard in their flesh, a way of life that he demands and that he himself lived. They are certainly willing to trust Jesus and accept his ways, but they reject the notion that he is authoritative and holding everyone responsible for how they think, how they speak, and how they live. And so the reality is apparent. The Bible is a plumb line. 
And a plumb line is, of course, a weighted instrument with a string connected so that the person holding it can determine if something is plumb, if it is straight, if it's in standard. This Bible and God's Son is the plumb line. And what it is doing is it, it is measuring to see if our thoughts are counter to him, if our ways lean away from him, if our words pull to the side one way or the other of him. It's a plumb line. And Jesus is going to return in glory and in power, and he will measure every person with this plumb line. Now listen, for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, we have a hallelujah moment. And that Christ has already measured us and he has found us lacking. And by his grace and mercy, he came, lived among us with perfect standard of righteousness. But the one who knew no sin became sin for us, took sin upon himself on the cross for us and bore the weight and the judgment of all of that unrighteousness measuring and finding us falling desperately short of glory, measuring and finding us way to the left or way to the right from the plumb of God's word. And yet he takes that sin upon himself and he bears the full weight of God's holy wrath, holy justice and punishment that should be for us. He bears that for us that he might rightfully declare that we are holy and righteous before God. What a treasure the gospel is. This wondrous good news. So he will identify all who lean away from God's word and all who have rejected that gospel message of grace that Christ has come to not just forgive us of our sin but make us in right standing with the Father and give us a new life in Jesus Christ. So the people that most boldly reject Jesus and his coming again are those who who embrace sin and live the standards that they choose to live, many of them but not any standard. I'm talking about the sexually deviant, those who deny the Bible's moral righteous standing and absolutes, those who discount the sacredness of life, the religious who are not regenerated in Jesus Christ, the self-indulgent and the self-determined, all those are quick to reject that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. If such people claim God, they fashion him in their own making, saying that he is benevolent and kind and generous and loving, but they would never acknowledge him as the judge who will come in power and glory. So when Peter and others spoke of the Lord coming in power and glory, those who were bothered by that claimed it's just, it's just a myth. He is not coming in that way. So Peter gives a rebuttal, and it is simple, profound, but simple. And this is how you and I can be confident that the Lord is coming again in glory and power. And then we'll talk about what difference that makes. Here's the reason why. He just gives us two points, all right? Just, you can follow along in your handout or su see it supersized behind me. First of all, he says, the apostles testified about experiencing Jesus' majesty and hearing God the Father's affirmation in this majestic glory when he said from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the first rebuttal that Peter gives. 
Peter is saying, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, let's just kind of unpack that for a minute and think of the magnitude of what he's saying there. The apostles and others witnessed the, the miracles of Jesus, the authoritative teachings of Jesus, the righteous life of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the fact that the, one of the last thing he said, and then the angel said in repeat, repeating of it, he will come again. That's what he has told us. And they were with Jesus, the apostles were, and his majesty on that holy mountain when the glory of God was revealed and Jesus was transfigured before them as he was talking to Moses and Elijah. And they heard the voice of the Father who said to, the, to, to all that were listening as he descended on that holy mountain, that, that majestic glory, that's the holy the holiness of God coming down from, from heaven that's covering the mountain. In the midst of that, they hear the Father's voice, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So what that was happening there is they were experiencing a snapshot, if you will, of God revealing the power and the glory of Jesus Christ, of testifying of who Christ is. That's a snapshot of what is going to take place when Christ himself will come with the shout of the archangel, with the voice of God, and everybody will know the glory and the power of God in that moment. It's just a snapshot when you see that on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter say, is saying, I was there. I witnessed that. I heard it, I saw it, I felt it. I was there in that moment. And they were never the same, Peter, James, and John, never the same after that experience. But it wasn't just Peter, James, and John, was it? It was the 500 witnesses that also saw Jesus after the resurrection. They were never the same. Experiencing this majesty of Jesus, they, they dedicated the rest of their lives to spreading the message of him. And they did that enduring hardships and persecutions for their faith. Yet they remained steadfast along with the apostles, even unto death. It provides compelling evidence, doesn't it, that their truth was in the testimony. I would say there's a whole lot of things that I was agreeable to, even saying that may not have been true, but I can tell you, I'm not going to do, endure hardship or persecution or death to cover a lie. At some point, I'm going to pull out of that. The apostles and those who saw Jesus in his majestic glory, they never backed down, even unto their death. These men were intimately acquainted with Jesus. They spent years with him and witnessed his miracles and heard his teachings and they experienced the resurrection and the, all that happened after that. And despite facing opposition and imprisonment and torture and martyrdom, they remained absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, the Savior of humanity and the Lord who promised to return. In their suffering, we can be certain that they had sincerity and integrity in their word. So when Peter says, we were witnesses, it's a big statement. It's a big statement. It's implausible to think that they would endure that kind of hardship and persecution and murder to hold on to a lie. But they were absolutely certain this wasn't any fabricated story. And then further, the spreading of that narrative 
the spreading of the testimonies, even in the face of persecution and opposition of those who had spread those testimonies. All the attempts were to suppress Christianity, but those Christians remained strong and true to the testimony that they heard from others because they had seen them and saw the demonstration of the power and the transformation that had taken place. Those early Christian communities, my friends, they were emerging from the apostolic witnesses. And they had really wicked people come against them with great persecution trying to intimidate them to stop them to stop this transformational movement but they could not stop it it's going strong even today in multiplied ways so from the early days of ministry throughout the days of Pentecost and the preaching there where 3,000 souls were saved all the way to the final writings that we're reading about right now Peter stood by this statement I was a witness of it All the way through, that was his message. He witnessed the life, the death, the resurrection, and he heard with his own ears, Jesus promised to return. Now that represents a powerful statement. That's the number one rebuttal that Peter starts with. I was a witness of it. I'm testifying of those things that I saw and know to be true. But as potent as that is, that's not the the grand kahuna that he gives us. This is not the pinnacle, the acme. Uh, this, is, this is not the, the greatest. The greatest is not the witness of those who saw it. It's not of the apostles. It's not of the early Christians. The greatest witness is the scripture itself. Because a witness can be swayed. A witness might misinterpret something. But my friends, The word of God is not interpreted by people. The word of God is the word of God. So he says, this is the strongest. And that's the second point. We have a prophetic word of God concerning Jesus from the pages of the Bible. Now, before we dig into the specifics, let me just remind us of the validity of the Bible that is anchored in the supernatural nature and the historical reliability of the word. Throughout uh, scriptures, throughout the centuries, excuse me, there have been people who have extensively researched the scriptures. And they've witnessed the compelling evidence that it upholds its true. Now, let me just mention three of those. First, the Bible is with supernatural unity and coherence. It's astonishing that it derives from various genres across uh, a span of time of 1,500 years among 40 different writers, and it all perfectly syncs up. That tells you that this word is divinely inspired. It has a consistent message, and that is that God is revealing the redemption for mankind and all of creation. And moreover, the Bible has a historical accuracy that is staggering. Archaeologists have discovered and confirmed the existence of cities and individuals and events that are described in the pages of the Bible. And time and time again, skeptics have been confounded by the Bible's accuracy that it withstands the scrutiny of science and historical examination. And furthermore, the transformative power of the Bible is undeniable. 
You can't argue with the fact that countless lives have been changed, including skeptics who come into it with the purpose of trying to discount it. And when they get into it and realize what it is, it transforms their lives personally. Some of them have become the greatest advocates of the scripture. It, it's not to be refuted. So the Bible stands as a reliable and authoritative source of truth. So Peter and others are great witnesses of this wondrous mystery of glory and power in Jesus Christ. But they say the greatest witness is not of themselves, what they saw and experienced. The greatest witness proves to be the scripture, the Bible itself as the authoritative word of God. Now, now look with me again at Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 16. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. In verse 20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. He says the greatest of the testimonies is not us, although that's good. The greatest is the scripture. In other words, Peter is proclaiming the authoritative message of the church is not grounded in the witnesses and the testimonies of the people and the preachers who proclaim it. Essentially, he's saying, don't just take my word for it. Read the Bible in its entirety, and you will find that it is the authoritative truth of God written over four, uh, by 40 authors over 1,500 years with a single message in mind. Read this word. It's a statement that is absolutely certain. Truth and authority are in God's word, the Bible. So we hold the Bible to be the authoritative word. It's authoritative in our lives and in our ministries. We say it's sola scriptura, the Latin phrase, that it is, it is what we live by. It is singular truth for our lives and living, the authority of our lives and living. It holds such a place because we understand the prophets and the apostles wrote those words that have now been canonized in the scripture and given to us by the Holy Spirit as a great treasure by which we live and memorize and live our lives by. It's the single voice of many authors, and that single voice is God himself. So you can be certain of God's will and way and its demands and expectations and its provisions and promises, including the fact that he is going to return again because the Bible says so. When people ridiculed Peter and others for claiming that Jesus was going to return in glory and in power to judge the living and the dead, he stood up and said, hey, my testimony has something to say against that. But then he affirmed it with this is the word of God. That's the reason why we read Psalm 2 from the very beginning of this service because I wanted you to get it in your mind that a thousand years before Peter testified about Jesus that he would return in glory and power, the psalmist said, Jesus would return in glory and power. A thousand years before. My friends, we can hold on to that truth. What does that mean for us? Let me just mention a couple of them. You can trust Jesus and his word and his promises and have great hope and confidence of his glorious return. And that makes a difference for today 
Because this world is chaos, is it not? Our leaders, for some reason, our political leaders thrive on chaos. They thrive when there's confusion and deceit. They thrive thinking that if we can divide, we can conquer. And we might wonder, where is this going? I'll tell you where it's going. It's going to come to an end in the day of the Lord when Jesus will return in glory and power and he will judge the living and the dead. That's where it's going. Don't get too rattled today. Markets a little wonky. Interest rates a little peaky. Don't get too out of shape. We know where this is going. There is coming a great day of the Lord when he will be revealed in glory and power and he will judge the living and the dead and he will reset all that is wrong and recreate heaven and earth never to be touched by sin again and you and I will move in with all God's glory in the new Jerusalem. What a day that'll be. It's a big deal when people discount the Lord's coming, isn't it? And it also points that we should be living our lives treasuring this word that God has given to us, trains us well for righteousness, knowing that we're going to be accountable to everything done in this body. Knowing the Lord is coming in power and glory changes the way we live today. Knowing that you and I will stand before him as he's on that elevated platform called the Bema Seat, knowing that we will stand before him and be held accountable for everything done in this body, that changes things, doesn't it? When we stand before him in his glory and power, you and I need to be mindful of that, not just because the world is chaotic and one day God is going to reset that, but because it changes the way we live. It alters what we think is most important. It puts the priority list in another arrangement. It changes the way you spend your money. It changes the generosity in which you live. It changes the words that you share with people, friends, family, strangers. It changes things when you know that Christ is returning in glory and power. So no wonder the enemy wanted it to be out there that, oh, that's just a bunch of myths. It's devised by people. It's not true. No wonder the enemy wants that. But no wonder the Spirit of God has given us a written record of what is true. We're thankful for that, aren't we? Let's live our life in that gratitude. Pray with me, if you will. Lord, thank you for the reminder that Jesus is coming again. Thank you for the certainty that gives us that those of us who are in faith in Christ can be certain that he has already accomplished on the cross what we could not accomplish on our own. He has paid for our sin and our transgresses. And oh Lord, thank you for the righteousness that he gave us and the new life that is ours in the resurrection by his Holy Spirit. Oh, I thank you as well for the clarity of your word that helps us to live our life accordingly, knowing that you're going to be, we're going to be before you one day, 
and that you'll judge and all that is of eternal value will be rewarded and everything else burned away. Thank you for that reminder. Let our lives be lived in accordance to that truth. And Lord, we thank you for Peter and other witnesses who saw you, who saw your majesty and your glory and were willing to share it even at the cost of their death. Thank you for them. Thank you for the treasure of scripture and how you, our Holy Spirit, have given it to us in perfect order. Thank you for that and for being our teacher. And we thank you for the church that's meant to encourage each other to walk in its truths. So help us, God, to do that, I pray in Jesus' name.